Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Diana Galiva. Diana is a non-resident fellow at the Gulf International Forum, and she's also with the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. Previously, she's been an academic visitor to St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, and excitingly, she's the author of two books. The first is Qatar, The Practice of Rented Power, which is published by Routledge earlier this year, and also uh, an IB Taurus book, Russia and the GCC, The Case of Tatarstan's Paradiplomacy. That also came out this year, so it's been a busy year. So I'm really very much looking forward to discussing Diana's work. She's been incredibly prolific on uh, a whole host of issues pertaining to the Gulf and to COVID. So Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for your kind invitation, Simon. It's and a pleasure. It's a true honor for me. Oh, the honor is ours. Thank <laughs> you so I, much. Yeah, and I believe the last uh, broadcast you did with the wonderful Professor Anusha Khtishami. Yes. So to be given on the same platform as such a well-known <laughs> academic, for me, after completing like three years of PhD from Durham University, it's really very precious. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've been reading your work uh, quite a lot over the past few months. You've been incredibly uh, busy with your output. So I'm really delighted that we're able to, to talk about your your fascinating work. So, Diana, the first question I, I have to ask is how did you, as, as someone from uh, a, a country far away from the region, become interested in, in Gulf politics? Actually, since childhood, I was uh, interested. I've been interested in politics, but in terms of implementation of it rather than to uh, analyzing of it. So aiming to be useful to my Republic of Tatarstan and to my nation, I didn't consider leaving the Republic and was accepted to prestigious uh, Kazan Federal University. And for academic excellency and my very active contributions to the university and the Republic social life, I even was awarded the Student of the Year Award. And this award carried the significant privileges to carry internships at the uh, cabinet of ministers, Tatarstan presidential office, and even under the personal supervision of the minister of uh, justice. Wow. Perhaps uh, it would be have been very wise at that stage just to get a job and do do it. But uh, I was observing the work in the key institutions of the republic, and I started to think how a small nation, as a Tatars, and and being representative myself. We able to show ourselves in the international arena and what means we should uh, use for that. And also, I realized if I would like to contribute to my republic, I must learn uh, the theoretical background of the politics, international relations, and also learn from other nations, countries, and their experiences to bring something new and innovative. So at that time, I was traveling occasionally to the UK to study English language. And frankly, I really fell in love with the country. So I applied to two universities and got offers from both. That was uh, from East Anglia or on international relations of Eurasia and from the Exeter University, uh, from uh, international relations of the Middle East. So I felt like Eurasia is something familiar to me and uh, Middle East would be more interesting and Perhaps I was very naive to think this way, but I've never regretted. 
And I remember the first um, assessment uh, uh, essay we had to write. It was uh, for the course with who uh, the the professor Michael uh, Dumper uh, was our lecturer, and it was about uh, GCC state vulnerabilities. And I've maintained this uh, since then. My key interest on the Gulf states and uh, their politics, and I found the GCC states they are very similar. Uh, in terms of um, my uh, Tatarstan Republic, in terms of because they are small states, but in comparison with Tatarstan Republic, they were able to project power and mm-hmm. they uh, been uh, influential, especially uh, that was time after the Arab thing, you know, it was uh, something big how with small states they were able to project that power. And that was really, um, that was very, uh, very much interesting for me. And during my master, I also uh, was interested in the concepts of soft power, uh, hard power, smart power, and try to apply them in my state. However, I remember the day uh, when I took uh, in my hands uh, Professor Mehran Kavrava's book uh, on Qatar, small state, and big politics, mm-hmm. uh, where he proposes the concept of subtle power based on the Qatari case, and I've been reading, uh, rereading, loudly arguing, thinking, and, and I thought, this is it. So all my answers are there, and uh, and it really um, this book shaped uh, uh, my me and my research interest. And the third milestone, I believe, uh, was when I met uh, Dr. Abdullah Babud. Uh, I interviewed him for my uh, master um, dissertation, and then he mentioned about the up- upcoming uh, Gulf um, research meeting. And I, uh, in a few days, I went to Cambridge and I participated in the workshop of uh, Halit Al-Mizani and Dr. Jean-Marc Harikli on the role of the GCC small states in the Arab Spring. So, and I have tried not to miss GRM uh, since then, because this is a very symbolic conference for me. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time I really understood that um, this is my way and where, where I want to, what I want to do in my life, to study these countries. Amazing. That's really a really, really fascinating story. And those those moments that puncture your journey are, are really interesting. Obviously, we've we've spoken with with Mehran and we've spoken with Abdullah and uh, delighted. I'm sure they'll be delighted that you've uh, you've been shaped intellectually by their their ideas and their enthusiasm. So after Exeter, after the uh, the Gulf Research Meeting, you went to Durham for your yes, PhD. I took that's right. And I took a gap year after my master's. And this was, I think, the period when I really realized that I want to do uh, my doctorate uh, on international relations of the Middle East, continue my research on the GCC states and to work uh, in the UK. So, and I received very positive response from Dr. Christopher Davidson, uh, who agreed to act as my supervisor. So, and um, that was a great privilege for me. And my Durham experience was also very transformative because uh, my thesis explored uh, the case of uh, Qatari, um, and um, Qatar is a welfare frontier state monarchy, and asking the question what type of power uh, did Qatar wield between 1995 and 2019. And this uh, thesis, uh, it involved a lot of discussions about what concepts of power, IR theories, uh, I mean, and I, I, I really benefit a lot uh, from 
um, the professor from Gia, Durham University, such as Professor Anush Akhtishami, Professor Yuta Bakoni, Professor Elon Warren, Dr. Cameron Carrington, Professor uh, Clive Jones, Professor John Williams. So, and working with Chris Davidson was uh, uh, extraordinary, a great uh, experience. He was very much supportive, and I'm so much thankful for this experience. Amazing. And you had some uh, some really good names that you've just listed there. So uh, I'm not surprised that you have such positive memories of your of your time. Can I ask, Diana, but the first time that you went to Qatar then, given that you read Mahran Kamarava's book and it had such a, an impact on you and given that you were really keen to to sort of explore how the GCC states had positioned themselves for not just for intellectual reasons, but for the the sort of political goal with regard to taking it back home to Tatarstan. What were your uh, what are your memories and your recollections of going to Qatar for the first time? Then, with all of this in mind, actually, uh, Qatar was the first uh, my Gulf state which I uh, entered, and I was very impressed. I was. Uh, um, going to different museums, I was doing my field work, I was uh, interviewing uh, famous um, academics, politicians, and it was uh, something um, just, uh, I mean, the country is, um, from the international relations perspective, can be understood as a microstate, microstate uh, with all this quantity and smallness uh, idea, but at the same time, it's really uh, shaped the idea of international relations, understanding of the small state, and uh, uh, this uh, the the winning of the bit of the World Cup 2022, and uh, something bringing new to the region and uh, to Qatar. To to it, it's something uh, fascinating, and I believe that uh, in the future it's also not a Qatarian then Emirati cases uh, is the idea of the smallness and how these countries they shape international relations I think it shaped a lot my research objectives for example during the coronavirus uh, the pandemic I looked how um how they were able to, tank, to tackle pandemic but at the same time also how with the foreign aid these countries were able to influence worldwide and I think this is a very um, interesting uh, uh, the countries in terms of the, uh, like uh, to understand them uh, from the ter- theoretical point of view yeah I mean, that's that's fascinating really really interesting um, well, I want to talk about COVID in a, in a little bit but can I ask when was it that you were in Qatar for the first time when did you first go uh, it was uh, 20 19, I believe. Right, no, okay. no, 17. Okay. 17 during my, uh, yeah, doctor, doctorate, yeah. Fantastic. And your, your PhD thesis went on to become your, um, one of your two 2020 books, 2022 books. Goodness, that's a mouthful. Which is the, um, the Qatar, the practice of rented power with Rowlich. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yeah. So, so tell, tell us a little yeah. bit about that, please, Diana. So I look to the prevailing perspective uh, there on IR, uh, very relevant academic discussions on the definition of small states. And uh, over the five years, uh, what I've been working on this project, uh, this I, uh, I, I, I named this 
kind of alternative type of power based on the Qatari case. First, it was uh, named the Shrewd power, then adopted and finally rented. And probably you would ask me why rented, why you choose this definition. So rented because uh, the, it um, when um, because Qatar is a state with limited capacity, using its only credible power sources wealth, relied on uh, its uh, engagement with non-state actors. And in, in the book, I discuss uh, relations with political Islam, actors, tribes. I consider them through uh, like uh, as the non-state actors as well, media, sport, and other uh, others to project power. So the, this uh, policy allowed Qatar to rent well-established already transnational uh, kind of uh, the influence of these non-state, non-state actors. So simply put, rented power rather than relying relying on its own uh, power capacities. Uh, the um, the state is able to rent well-established non-state actors, uh, um, transnational influence already established. So I think this is the main key um, kind of my what what I aim to do to do the my key contributions uh, with this book. Fantastic. Well, thank you. That's that's really valuable. Um, in terms of this rented power, then I find it a really interesting concept. And you've, you've said a little bit about it just now, but can you elaborate on exactly what it is then? How does this idea of rented power work? And you sort of pointed to why it was different from other other conceptual approaches. But if you can just elaborate a little bit, please. Sure. Uh, so I believe, um, the so as I mentioned, the key contribution is the theoretical one. And probably it's uh, worth mentioning uh, all kind of um, the main uh, the words that I used um, uh, like for example Robert, Robert Dahl's contribution is the central to the building of the theoretical foundations of uh, this rented power which is based on the relational power approach uh, this means that uh, all uh, countries um, all, all states uh, with like uh, considering them small or middle powers or uh, like great powers and um, they will be able to uh, wield power um, so then given the discussion of those uh, intellectual successors uh, by including non-state actors within the definitions of power wielders and by explaining the relations between the state and non-state actors um, and the further developed balance of uh, power theory, which considers uh, rather than violence, but uh, money is the key means uh, to build these relations and alliances. Uh, all this uh, helps to explain Qatar's strategies uh, for wielding power. So I think this is the central dif- differentiation from existing types of rented power. And as I said, rather than uh, based on only on its state capacity. For example, if we consider like um, so far, so this is uh, about the state uh, cultural or uh, diplomatic or foreign policies, uh, the uh, its own uh, power resources. But here, I, I think that Qatar really tried to rather to have these dealings with um, uh, the different non-state actors. Uh, uh, what I, I looked to. Um, uh, for example, now with the World Cup, with uh, FIFA, and uh, with other FECA uh, Barcelona, for example, all of these dealings, uh, in a way, uh, it helped to uh, to to attract and to have the same influence, which already was established by this non-state actor. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You've, you've preempted a question there, Diana, so thank you. I was going to ask about the World Cup uh, because you've got this really interesting piece in the Gulf International Forum questioning to what extent the World Cup actually helps Qatar project its soft power. And some critics of of the soft power approach or, or people who look at the, the downsides of a soft power approach will say that it, it shines a light on on some some issues that may have perhaps been been pushed to the margins. And the example, of course, in the Gatari case is the, the human rights of migrant workers. So I wonder to what extent you think the World Cup has actually been helping um, Doha project its, its influence for people who've not read the piece. I think uh, the I, uh, the main idea of the soft power is very influential, and I really believe in the power of soft power, if I may to say that. And I think for Qatar, uh, with this World Cup, uh, the uh, it's uh, emerging as uh, one of the kind of. Uh, uh, at least uh, in terms of the branding of the state in the international level, this uh, the World Cup was fundamental. And I would like to end, but the, the, the problem with um, soft power, it's uh, the policies of the long-term outcome. So we will be able to see them after some time. Mm-hmm. So whether it brought more weight or cost, I think uh, we will see it after, uh, I mean, when uh, the World Cup will be implemented. But I want to give you one example regarding the soft power, which relates also with uh, Gulf State. Uh, for example, the Expo Dubai, uh, which uh, took place in 2020 because of the pandemic. So it's over 180, um, one, uh, 182 days. It recorded more than 24 million visits. So just imagine uh, that with this soft power tool, the country is able to attract millions of visitors across the globe, which uh, contributes to the branding of the countries, along with bringing uh, a lot of economic benefits for a country as well. So, and similarly, in that period of time, I also was uh, in uh, UAE and in Abu Dhabi, it was uh, hosted the Maritime Her- um, Heritage Festival. And it was amazing experience on the sea. Uh, they were showing the Al-Nakhba, uh, the kind of cultural um, uh, cultural festival. And I think this is uh, really fascinating because in the same time, uh, tourists are able to come to see like uh, this big mega event of Expo and then they can be influenced by Emirati soft power in Abu Dhabi in this festival. And I think similarly would be working the idea and the World Cup, um, the influence. So we uh, there will be a lot of people who will be fans coming to the World Cup and uh, they will be uh, given opportunity to discover more for themselves Qatar, the GCC state, the region in general. So uh, there are a lot of discussions about whether it's um, uh, soft power or soft power, which is empowerment, etc. But I, I strongly believe uh, this uh, soft power tool and the World Cup really brought Qatar to the level of uh, at least to the regional middle powers. Uh, and I would like to highlight again, according to the um, this uh, quantitative uh, characteristic of the state, it's a microset. So it's really helped a lot. And perhaps if we speak about um, another, I, I want to give just an example because Please. I really enjoy speaking about soft power. So another example of the dangers of ignoring the role of soft power and especially the role of shared identities, I would like to offer for my research on Russia and the GCC state uh, and uh, especially 
Moscow utilization of Russian Muslims uh, to advance its foreign policies uh, during the Soviet time in 1920s and 30s. And there were a lot of um, kind of that time, uh, USSR applied the policy of this Muslim factor and they were giving uh, opportunities to uh, for example, Tatar uh, uh, Karim Hakimov, who was a Muslim, he was the uh, first uh, the um, uh, the first Soviet Council General in Riyadh, and he got very good relations with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Ibn Saud. And uh, but the, the the problem is that uh, he was uh, during the Stalin um, repressions he was executed, and uh, accordingly some historical interpretations said that after that Ibn Saud uh, decided to frozen completely relations with Soviet Union uh, and um, uh, the kingdom. So just imagine because of the uh, this um, um, the, the 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 because of the one uh, I, I mean um, uh, uh, so and in uh, 1928. In March, uh, it was found um, just a few uh, months after the uh, the um, killing of um, um, the Karim Hakimov. So it was found the oil, and I was uh, in in Saudi Arabia, and I was so uh, impressed when I was in Bashkortostan because uh, Karim Hakimov, he was originally from Bashkortostan, still in, in political elite level. They are discussing that if this wouldn't happen. Perhaps now relations with uh, Russia and with Saudi Arabia would be completely different and completely uh, history would be reversed and completely would be different kind of these uh, alliances. And we also need to remember that period of time uh, because of the Saudi kind of frozen relations with um, uh, Soviet Union, uh, other GCC small states, they also weren't able to uh, build uh, uh, more close relations with Moscow, with the Kremlin, uh, even after withdrawal of the uh, British from the Gulf, from the region. So I think this ignorance of these uh, factors and uh, usage of hard power, in a way, it's really diminishing a lot uh, this uh, very important um, soft power tool. Mm, that's really interesting. Thank you for, for pointing out the historical components as well that I think are, are often overlooked, if not ignored. So thank you, Diana. Um, going about well, close to a century later than the, the the story you've just recounted, you've done some really interesting work on COVID. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with that, please. What is it that you're you're trying to get at with these bits of, of work and, and what are the main findings? So, yes, yes. Simon, thank you for pointing out about this. Um, I, I think it's very, I also found very interesting because when COVID started, I started to look through the responses of uh, small, again, small states, but uh, to what extent they are small. And again, um, uh, about the Qatar and the uh, Emirates. And I started to look at their kind of strategies, uh, again, understanding of their smallness, security choices uh, during these unprecedented times. And um, uh, for me, uh, it was interesting how these small but influential actors, uh, they address changes in political systems and dynamics. 
Uh, and particularly, they were quite effective uh, when they addressed in the national level uh, the COVID pandemic. And I believe because of the small uh, size of their countries, it benefited them a lot. But at the same time, uh, we, with regards to them uh, tackling the global pandemic and offering their uh, foreign aid, I, I believe these small states, they, accused, uh, they um, emerged as a strong one. Um, and, um, for example, um, they were offered a lot of uh, foreign aid in uh, different countries, and including, for example, even to Europe. And uh, that was quite uh, fascinating for me as well uh, to see. So I, I believe that uh, we need more uh, alternative um, IR literature to consider the smallness and uh, this DCC states really offers great opportunities to uh, to 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 discover to revise uh, well established uh, theories about the great powers, small powers, I and mean, middle powers. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and there have been some 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 provocative pieces reflecting on ideas of, of middle powerness in in recent years. Um, thinking of, of Adham Sauli's unfulfilled aspirations in particular, which, which goes some way to, to trying to fill that intellectual gap. But also talking to Anoush um, recently, Anoush Atashami, we were talking about his interest in middle powers many, uh, many moons ago. I, I think it was the, the early 90s, perhaps a little later, um, when he was talking about his own work on middle powers, and yet those, those gaps hadn't been filled, as you say. So maybe you're onto something, Diana. Maybe this is, is going to go some way into filling these gaps. Yeah, but perhaps with the 90s, here we would more focus on the Kuwaiti uh, interesting initiatives and usage of soft power. Uh, but uh, here uh, nowadays, Perhaps with all of this, again, World Cup and this mega event, maybe uh, Qataris and Emiratis uh, examples are more um, kind of um, illustrative uh, to, to discuss this subject. Mm, sure. So aside from COVID, aside from Qatar and, uh, and soft power and rented power, you've also been doing some really interesting work with regard to Russia, which I guess makes a lot of sense given your story and the impact of the war in Ukraine on the GCC. And this is where the, the stuff you've been doing for the Gulf International Forum, I think, is really valuable. And you've written several, um, several important essays on, on, the, on the conflict, on Russian engagement with Iran, on um, Iran and Qatar, on the, the broader Gulf states' relationship with Russia during the, the the conflict itself. So I wonder if you can just give us a bit of an overview, Diana, of, of the, the work that you've been doing in this area, please, and some of the, the key things that you think people need to know about how the conflict has shifted Russia's relationship with the Gulf states. Thank you, Simon. So uh, this is another area of my expertise, what I've been developing uh, during my academic researchership uh, at uh, St. Anthony's College at Middle Eastern Center. 
So um, the result uh, of this Russia-Gulf relations through the uh, kind of Muslim uh, lens will be published um, in my forthcoming book, uh, the Russian DCT, the case of Tatarstan paradiplomacy. Uh, the new um, academic paper will be also published with the King Faisal Center for Research Islamic uh, Studies just uh, very shortly. Fantastic. And hopefully the book chapter also on Saudi-Russia-USSR relations, uh, which is under review, hopefully will be published as well. So uh, why um, I mentioned uh, also, I, I, I stress about some historical kind of uh, parallels here, but what may, what made me to be interested in this subject, let's put in this way. So it started with um, uh, kind of uh, observing the um, over last, Six, seven years, I think, uh, this active in- engagement between Russia and the Gulf leadership, especially official visits started with uh, King Salman uh, visit to, to Russia in 2017, and return Putin also visited in uh, UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, there were a lot of analysis which uh, focused on them primarily from the perspective of uh, kind of economic relations, energy, weapons, uh, etc. But, uh, and uh, the kind of Russia's um, um, ongoing presence in the region. Uh, but uh, there weren't much work on the, uh, the role of uh, Russian regions, especially with Muslim population. And being myself a representative of one of it, uh, I thought that that would be very interesting to, to explore further. And also, I found that uh, interesting parallel that, uh, as I mentioned, Kari Hakimov, who was a Tatara region and first consul general, he granted to uh, um, to uh, Ibn Saud the formal recognition as the king of Hijaz and Sultan of Nesh in 20, uh, 20, 1926. Sorry. And this, uh, th- that means that uh, USSR became the kind of the first state to establish full diplomatic relations with the kingdom of Hijaz and Nesh. And over 90 years later, in Another uh, politician, uh, Tatar uh, president at that time, now uh, he's head of the Tatarstan Republic, Rustam Minhanov, he was chosen to deliver an invitation from Putin to the King Salman and then this, uh, the, 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 the uh, official uh, visit of King Salman to Russia happened. So I thought that that wouldn't be possible to kind of to compare the two, these two very important uh, if, uh, no, I mean, the, the first uh, such as important uh, event in 1926, but we still could see some uh, uh, role of uh, Tatars and Muslims in, in these uh, directions and these some interactions, and which are mostly overlooked in most of analysis. So, and I... Uh, I started to to research, and uh, this book doesn't um, uh, not just uh, about uh, Tatarstan, but also includes the final chapter uh, about relations with the Gulf states, with uh, Bashkortostan, uh, Chechnya, uh, Ingushetia, Dagestan. So I did field works in these uh, republics. I met uh, high-ranking um, high political elites, religious authorities, um, and. Um, Oh, business um, businessman who is dealing with the Gulf state. Also, uh, I think the originality of my work uh, being that um, the literature primary secondary sources they are from um, uh, six languages. So it's a Tatar, a Bashkir, which are uh, kind of minority languages. Uh, then um, um, Arabic, Turkish, um, uh, English, and Russian. Um, and um, that's you using six languages for this. 
yes. Just um, to clarify, six sorry? languages. I'm just clarifying for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, you're using six yeah. languages. I I I I felt that. Uh, I mean, uh, for me, it's more. I mean, other languages are very important as well. But I mean, the, the bringing this Tatar and Bashkir language was for me very. Uh, I think important. Yes, it is incredibly important, so, and you're putting yeah. us all to shame with six languages. Goodness me! Sorry, please so, go on, uh, Diana. Yes, uh, Simon, and uh, I think the importance of this work. I really, uh, I realized after the invasion uh, to Ukraine, Russia's invasion to Ukraine. Why? Because there were a lot of explanations explanations of the neutral stances of the GCC state or the Middle Eastern uh, kind of region. But then uh, uh, I also, I, I, I totally, uh, I mean, agree with this kind of the Chile relation with Washington or the GCC states uh, or the kind of the, uh, the economic advantages like in, in the energy sector. Uh, it is uh, the most important factors, I know. But also uh, from my research, I also saw that this Islamic factor, it really uh, boosted relations with the GCC states. It helps a lot. And I look to, I, I, I propose the kind of through the different mechanism and pathways, how this work have been developed. So it was uh, organized through the power diplomacies of these Muslim uh, populated uh, areas, like what I mentioned, republics, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, Chechnya, Uzbekistan, Ingushetia, and then through religious authorities. Um, and uh, maybe it's uh, in a way advantage for Russia. There isn't one kind of patriot or, or one in a way kind of um, Muslim authority uh, in Russia. There are several in Moscow, in Ufa, uh, and uh, separate in Tatarstan. And all of them try to build real, uh, these relations. And it's also, uh, but in a way, I think if we look to the broader picture, it benefits. Uh, is the federal center in, in general uh, through these policies. Then there is another organization, non-governmental organization, such as uh, Russia, um, Group of the Strategic Vision Russia Islamic World, so um, which is headed by the, um, the president of Tatarstan. And also they implement very important um, uh, summit, uh, which is called Kazan Summit. Mm -hmm. So it's the key platform to build kind of these economic relations with uh, Russia and OE countries. And in this regard, I think there, there were a lot of interesting dynamics were happening in terms of the devel developing Islamic um, finance and Islamic um, uh, economy. Uh, there were also um, a lot of discussions, but uh, I also found that every new crisis with the West uh, starting with uh, um, the world economic crisis in 2008, then with annexation of Crimea in 2014, that, that uh, led for again to discuss these opportunities to uh, to, to develop this uh, Islamic banking and uh, and with the, mainly with the GCC states. Uh, this um, work is happening with Saudi Arabia, with uh, uh, Emirates, with Bahrainis. Um, so and um, but uh, there were uh, before uh, a lot of challenges. So Russia doesn't have, like for example, uh, clear legislation uh, legislation about the Islamic banking and finance. Also, the Gulf states they didn't really um, directly funded or invested uh, to the regions. They did it from well, through the uh, Russian. Um, 
investment authority uh, and uh, the dollar is the key currency also despite the Moscow's and still ongoing uh, the kind of the policies of the dollarization and um, with the, along with China and with Iran for example still uh, US dollar is the key currency and this uh, among um, the key challenges uh, what I, I learned from the regional kind of political elites, what they were explaining before the, uh, the, the invasion. Definitely now, uh, the situation perhaps, um, uh, in a way, it's, um, with Western sanctions, uh, it puts, uh, close Russia and the, uh, to, towards the kind of, uh, with the Gulf states or uh, other, like, is, is, uh, with the Muslim world to develop this direction. But, uh, again, now more, I think, uncertainties. In terms of that, um, uh, Russia, uh, Moscow now or Russia cannot offer some kind of um, the. I mean, the, 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 everything depends from what will happen uh, uh, in Ukraine. What will be a status of um, kind of uh, worldwide Russian status uh, after uh, this uh, war? And uh, and also another issue. There were there are a lot of now discussions. I hear, for example, about the Russia's. Uh, policy of historization uh, kind of towards the east but uh, uh, my understanding is just um, mainly uh, about China, about India so where is the Middle East in the grand strategy of Russia and to what extent uh, it will be further developed, I mean to the mid run, long run uh, I have a lot of questions here also a lot of depends from the relations with the GCC states and relation with the West, especially with Washington, uh, whether they will continue to keep this uh, kind of neutral stance uh, I don't know, uh, but uh, what I, I I think that what is uh, quite uh, relevant uh, about my research, it also um, gives some explanations uh, in a way why this neutral stance was uh, from these uh, countries. So a lot of questions, but a lot of really, really rich and important stuff that that I'm pleased you're staying on top of, Diana. So um, do please check out her, her work for the Gulf International Forum, which, which looks at some of these questions. Diana, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've covered an awful lot of material, but it's been really rich and really great chatting with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And as always, I've learned a great deal. So a huge thank you. Thank you so much, Simon. But if I would like, uh, I would like to add a few uh, uh, points, if, if possible, please. I just would like to mention about my experience and at Oxford University as well, and because it's completely shaped me and uh, the work uh, to work with Professor uh, Eugene Rogan and Dr. Michael Willis uh, and uh, all the colleagues from Middle Eastern Center and uh, at St. Anthony's College. I'm so much grateful for this opportunity and we. But we, what we've been discussing, I think this wouldn't be happened without this kind of uh, daily engagement with these uh, professors. And uh, I think this uh, today's discussion is a great opportunity just to thank all people who played a very important uh, role for me as a kind of early career researcher. And I just would like to express all my gratitude to all, all of them. And thank you so much, Simon, for your kind invitation once again. Uh, and it's been a great pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is mine, Diana. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Diana for her time just now. It's a real pleasure talking with her and learning more about her work. You can find her on Twitter 
at Diana underscore Galiva. That's at Diana underscore Galiva. So a huge thank you to her and a huge thank you to you as always for listening. Until next time.